Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hello and welcome to this special Q&A episode of the Curzon Film Podcast. To coincide with the release of the supernatural drama The Little Stranger, we're bringing you a Q&A with the film's director Lenny Abrahamson and the author of the original book Sarah Waters. The Little Stranger tells the story of a young doctor, played by Donald Gleeson, called out to a stately home he once visited as a child, only to discover that a malevolent presence has manifested in the house. Co-starring Charlotte Rampling and Ruth Wilson, the Little Stranger is out in cinemas now. And warning, this Q&A does contain some spoilers for the film. So speaking with Kate Muir at Curzon Mayfair, here is Lenny Abramson and Sarah Waters. Enjoy. One of the great things I think that Ruth does in this is so playing down the kind of agony of being a member of the upper classes and she's always trying to slightly cross over and is slightly ashamed of it. And, and I just wondered... When you wrote her, were you aware of that voice in your in her head? Because I, I remember in the book you wrote, she's the worst dressed person sort of ever, isn't she? Yeah, she is. Um, yeah, I really enjoyed writing Caroline. I really, really missed her when the, when I bumped her off. Um, I thought that they're all snobs. You know, they're all full snobs. And actually, when you if you read accounts of upper-class life, or if you read, like, detective novels from the period, which are often on the side of, you know, the establishment and stuff, there's dreadful snobbery in them, I mean, atrocious snobbery. So if I had made them even halfway as snobbish as people like that really would have been, they they would have been repellent, you know. So I I had to make them snobbish enough that we understood that they were sealed off in a kind of class of their own and would brook no kind of... or find it difficult to brook a sort of intrusion, um, but also not, not make them repellent like that. So they all say dreadful things occasionally. But I was, I was fond of Caroline and felt very sorry for Caroline. I mean, her class situation is one thing, but as a woman in that period, you know, as a plain woman at that time, um, unmarried, knocking on a bit, you know, it was just a, an appalling thing to be. But during the war, I think she's probably had quite a fun time. She's been in the Rens, and if you read people like Barbara Pym, she wrote diaries. She was a plain woman in the Rens, and she had a really good time, you know, lots of parties, lots of gin, lots of flirting, even for rather plain women. So poor Caroline has been hoiked <laughs> back and um, is stuck. You know, they're all stuck in different ways, aren't they? Yeah. Um, Before we open it to your questions, and I'm sure you've got lots, I just wanted to ask you about the soundscape, Mm. which I absolutely loved. Can you explain to sort of the novice exactly what you were up to there and how you you just created that fantastic feeling of tension and horror? Well, the one thing... So I talked about the pictures and how it's hard to hide things. and, And if you do something unusual visually, it announces itself. So, So you need to be very... You need to hide your 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 kind of work 
um, in terms of the visual construction. But sound is a thing that you can really play with. And it's, it can be quite subliminal and it can creep in and people accept it as a kind of, um, as part of the expressive palette of filmmaking without questioning too much whether it's real or not. So we knew that sound would do a lot of work in the film. And normally when you're, I mean, when you're making something, what you're really concentrating on when you're shooting the scenes is getting clean dialogue. And given that we were shooting in Watford, you know, and there's not supposed to be trucks passing by Hundreds Hall, so much of our effort was keeping external sound out. But at the same time, the sound design team that I work with and I've worked with for years were over recording every aspect of the house in the evening, early in the morning when it wasn't traffic -y. So all the floors, all the doors, um, all the footsteps, they were, I mean, they were, they're really obsessive and wonderfully nerdy, so they would, they do these, they analyze every room for how much echo there is in it, and they recorded all the vehicles, and, and then using all that material, so building up a, a proper dedicated library of sound for this world, they then start to work it and layer it, and there are some almost musical elements and tones which are pitched down, there are um, almost aquatic sounds in the house, there's a little, there's a creak on the floorboard around, we decided there was, there isn't for real, but a creak on the floorboard right by the mirror where, where the acorn was snapped and where Faraday again sees himself several times in the film. And we use, so that creak happens when the boy is there, it happens when Faraday first arrives at the mirror, and that creak is transformed and used in all sorts of other places in the house and elsewhere in the film. Um, and, and so we build up a whole uh, kind of palette of, of things which we can play with. Um, and then there's a great amount of conversation between Stephen Rennicks, the composer, and Stephen Fanagan, the sound designer, um, about how, when music is doing the work, when sound design is doing the work, and how they interact. And it's a really fascinating part of the process. I often think about these films, it'd be really great to watch it in the dark, second time round, you know, and not see the pictures just and just... Yeah. Yeah. Can I ask something, actually, about the sound? Because there's a sound that recurs increasingly, and it's to do with the nursery. And it, when Caroline's going up the stairs, it's what she's going up to investigate, and it's a thump, thump, it's a thump. creak. Yeah. Thump, thump, creak. Yeah. And I wondered how you arrived at that particular sound. Did you think does it signify something in particular to you? Well, so there are, I mean, what it actually is, the, the creak thump sound, the thump is a version of the snap of the acorn. Um, and, um, but what happens at the end, in, incorporated into that whole phase in the sound, is also what Faraday is doing in the car. Yeah. So the banging and, and rage he feels. So we're, making, we're beginning to make more direct links between his internal state and what the house is doing. Yeah. But yeah, it's, it's the acorn it's just It just sounds like it, you can, I love the undecidability of it. You know, is it, it's almost like a rocking chair rocking, yeah. it's not, or a shutter flapping, it's not. And you're, you're, you're straining after being able to place it and yeah. you can't. I absolutely love that about it. Now, who would like to ask some questions? We've got two roving mics, so if you put your hands up. Uh, one over there to start, and maybe if you just send the mic to the next hand, you see if you put your hand, keep your hands going up. Hello. Hello. Um, actually, we're currently studying the little stranger for A level, so it's like amazing to be here. Um, so I wanted to ask you, kind of, what was the reason for your choice to have like Faraday's the narrator, like about his kind of unreliable qualities and kind of the sense of resent that he like carries and also for Lenny kind of how did you were there any challenges in kind of communicating that in the movie thank you 
Um, well, I kind of touched on it before. You know, I hadn't planned for him to be um, much of an agent or actor in in the um, in in the in the story, you know, there's lots of it's a very it's a classic ghost story trope um, to have somebody slightly on the edge of things. Mr. James does it a lot. Somebody meets somebody else and they've had this dreadful experience, and he's a kind of witness to it, but doesn't really witness the supernatural stuff himself. He just witnesses the effects of it. And I saw Dr. Faraday as rather like that. But then when I began to think about giving him this extra connection with the hall, that he's got this childhood connection with it. And that moment in the hall as a child, you know, represents lots of tensions around class that are going to emerge for him, and probably masculinity, actually. Um, he became much more interesting to me, and the potential for him to start off seeming benign and seeming on the side of the heirs and then ultimately being revealed, you know, subtly as the kind of agent of their, of their demise really appealed to me and, and, it, and it opened up all these possibilities for him to be unreliable. I'd never done an unreliable narrator before, so it was technically, it was a very interesting thing to do. Um, I think from the point of view of how we approach the film, uh, the thing, the starting point for me, or the thing I kept going back to is that Faraday himself, were, and I felt, I found Faraday very moving in the novel, uh, you know, I found it was just a tremendous amount of kind of sadness, that, that, that tragedy of not knowing that he brought the virus, that he brings his own, uh, he brings the destruction around him with him always. Um, but the thing I sort of kept thinking about was that Faraday himself isn't lying. I mean, Faraday, the, the degree to which he's hidden from himself is not a, con it's not a conscious suppression, it's a deeper kind of burying of, 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 of himself. And so we try. We didn't, like I said earlier, we didn't want to. I think we. What we do is we drift in and out of being with him and believing him. There isn't. And then towards the end of the film, as his actions become harder to kind of accommodate ourselves to, yes, there is a kind of more direct recognition um, that he isn't perhaps as he seems, but. Um, there's just no way of, without making something very crude, of transposing that very literary device of the narrator's voice. I mean, we did use some voiceover, um, but very little, as little as we could. But I think what is there does a really important job. Um, and and it, it, we pinned these key moments with voiceover, which allowed us, I think, to be a bit more, um, to drift a little bit between and not, you know, takes the pressure off, knowing that we can kind of we have these fixed points where we hear his voice. And other than that, I, I think, I mean, just going back to one thing, when I read the novel, I didn't know that there was a, I didn't know anything about it. I didn't, there wasn't even a cover. It was a PDF, I think. So I didn't know that there was going to be um, this poltergeist story in it. And so I really, I really allowed myself to become kind of connected to the characters and, and, and I found myself really believing the world so that when Sarah made the choice to have this stuff happen, it felt incredibly exciting, very rich and I could sort of feel the metaphorical meanings of it and I tried to do something like that in the film, to really take Faraday seriously, to be with him and to be forced out of him when I really couldn't stay close to him anymore. Other question over there in the Thank you. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. 
LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM. Um, so, first of all, I'm a really big fan of the book, and I love the book, and I just love the film as well. But I actually just wanted to ask um, more about the use of voiceover, because I thought it was really um, both subtle and yet worked with, both with Faraday and with Betty, and just about how, how, much, how much did you record and how much did you actually decide in the end to use? We recorded a little bit more than is in the film, um, but uh, Lucinda did an awful lot of work, and we worked very closely together so that... Uh, you know, uh, we both felt we were, we sort of understood the mechanics of the project um, but there was a bit more recorded and then we there were some pieces that we recorded maybe rewrote and re-recorded maybe 10 or 15 times, particularly the opening to get that right to, to, to include enough information about who he was, who they were, to, to place him but not over not, not kind of foreshadow in too obvious a way. And then the decision to repeat the opening voiceover at the end came quite late. Because what we were doing, there's, such, there's a beautiful piece passage at the end of the novel, which I was incredibly wedded to, when he says, but the face staring back at me was my own. Um, I, was, I really felt that we had to make that work. But what happened in the film is that giving him that even hearing him in the present makes him more knowable than we wanted him to be in the film at the end but hearing his voice was essential we tried to play the end with no voiceover and that also didn't work that felt too open but but hearing what he had said to us before um about that first visit and how it had made such an impression on him that that somehow didn't break the spell but but did what we needed it to do. I mean, the brilliant thing about voiceover is you can keep reworking it. I thought it was absolutely genius, actually, that repetition at the end, because for the body of the film, you hear the voiceover and you think, yes, okay, this is a cinematic convention. It's doing this, it's doing that. And then it's repeated at the end. You think, oh, my God, this guy is just trapped, sort of repeating this over and over and over again, you know. And the little boy inside him who's got loose is trapped just you know, going back into the nursery at the end. I just thought that was fantastic. And, and that last image of, I mean, there were a few things that, that were really key to making the film, finding the version of this ending that worked in the film. 
But the little boys look over the ba- uh, over the balustrade um, at the end, having the kind of having the emotional landing of the film be somehow with the young Faraday was something that we discovered really very close to the end. Watching him reflect on the emptiness of 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 that circle that you're referring to, but so the secret is that the we really that was originally filmed to be used just after Caroline hits the ground. Well, a little bit in the courtroom, in other words. As Faraday, she says you, Faraday thinks, you look at Caroline's face, dead, looking up, and off her look, you see the boy looking down. And then the whole ending would happen, Faraday would look at himself in the mirror, leave, and we would not see the boy in the, in the landing. And I remember on the day that I shot it, and we shot it for night, thinking, Christ, I wish I had time to shoot it for a day because I had this inkling that it could be if, uh, used at the end of the film. But we didn't have time. And so we did an awful lot of work digitally to turn that night into day. I shouldn't say that because it's a really good end shot and I should claim it as an entirely intended ending. But. Um, gentleman there. The blue shot. I'm just interested to know whether you could actually considered not to show the little boy looking over the balcony, which kind of, if you didn't, it would just remain... Totally mysterious, yeah. Um, we considered everything. I mean, we tried... Just in that section, the opening and the ending, we worked on endlessly again and again, and so we had various versions of that ending where the boy was not revealed. Um, and... It was. It's always very difficult because when you know something as well as you are bound to know it at the end of a long editing process, it's very difficult to judge what something is doing. But it really felt to me like there is a good sort of ambiguity and a bad kind of ambiguity. And the good sort of ambiguity is the sense that it's all there, but you're not quite joining the dots. The bad kind is that it's just not all there. There's a jigsaw with a missing piece. And it felt to me that the representation of Faraday as child trapped in the house and the sort of personifying that energy, you know, whatever that thing is that, that, that Celia and Faraday talk about, that felt like it was necessary. And emotionally as well, just the kind of humanizing of the demon as, a, as this lost child felt, felt emotionally satisfying. Any questions down this side? It's been a bit neglected. No? Oh, gentleman in the front row. Can you... Oh, you've got someone there? Yeah, thank you. Gentleman in the brown shirt. Thank you. Hi, good evening. I loved the film. Thank you very much. But am I reading too much into it? I was guessing a little bit that uh, Dr. Faraday, when young, was responsible for the demise of Zuki. How, what had he done to her? That's the mystery. But I loved it very much. It was brilliant. And there's a level of truth in your writing, Miss Walters, that you know very other, a lot of other authors don't get at. When I read the book years ago, it made such an impact on me. You know, I read it in one, you know, maybe two sittings, spent the whole day reading it. And it made such an impact because I felt that you'd hit some level of truth in that book that no one else had quite got to. It wasn't a horror, it wasn't a ghost story, but it was very, very truthful. That's wonderful, thank you. 
Yes, how far Faraday's sort of malignity extends is interesting. I remember when we met, he mentions in the book that his mother, he doesn't have any brothers and sisters because his mother had had miscarriage after miscarriage and finally dies. Anyway, and I remember you saying, yes, I bet she did, you know, as if he didn't, he couldn't even stand any sort of siblings around him. So in terms of, I don't know, you did a lot more with Suki, um, didn't you, than I did? We sort of got, I got obsessed about the possible mechanics of this force in the house for a while and the way we left it was I suppose in the way that you know Dr. Uh, Mr. Hyde is somehow a, a I don't know a, a manifestation of the darker parts of Dr. Jekyll and presumably sympathetic to Jekyll's moods the acorn break was always for me the moment of, of separation between our Faraday and this sort of dark Faraday and at that moment, Susan is there to witness his humiliation. And I suppose Mrs. Eyre says later in a scene, that was her last happy day. By evening, she was already quite ill. So the little tease we put in was the idea that already something in the house is taking its revenge. But then Faraday goes and lives his life, and maybe nothing more would have happened had he not been called back to hundreds and felt the desire for it rise again. Um, there is a scene which again you know in film particularly flow is everything but there's a really lovely scene which we cut in the end where Faraday goes to to Standish Hall to see how Gillian is the next morning and he meets Seeley who's the family doctor and Seeley says how are things up in hundreds you know he says something like I've never liked the place Um, I treated young Susan Ayres, um, diphtheria, I thought I had the measure of it, but then, I don't know, something happened. So that was another little clue, but... So I think, yes, I do think Suki's demise was, in our film anyway, the result of Faraday. Um, a question, another one there, and um, one at the back. I think we've got room for two more. Both, whatever. Run to whichever is nearest. Um, I was... Uh, quite surprised actually to find out uh, that uh, you weren't the screenwriter on the film as well and I'm just wondering if you could touch on your uh, process there, what it was like to collaborate with Lucinda, how how was she involved, what was your working relationship like? Um, well so Lucinda's you know, wonderful writer and I've always, I had been an admirer of hers and we just did, we did a lot of talking, so so I spent quite a lot of time in her in her kitchen with her and her. She's a lovely dog, and I'm a dog person, and the the dog was sort of always around, and we would have long conversations both about the kind of because nothing is settled until everything is settled, and there are various films you could make out of this, and you could you could fillet it for the for the kind of conventional horror. Um, film or, or do what we did, which was, I think, stay faithful to its ambiguity. But the process was just that Lucinda would write, I would read, we would talk, and we would do that endlessly. And, um, you know, Sarah's amazing in that she she's like the dream um, author in that when she assigns the rights to somebody, she that's the moment, I think, for you that it's... That's the moment where you trust somebody and then you just let them go. But we, we did share versions with you. And occasionally I contacted Sarah to ask her kind of research questions or whatever. But, but yeah, it was just an attempt to... It was just lots of talking, lots of redrafting, lots of talking. 
Let me, I think we've got to wind up now, but I just want to ask you both what you're doing next, because you're deep in historical research. You've gone a few years further ahead. Tell us a little bit. I've about leapt that. forward to 1952. So <laughs> it's, um, it's actually not a dissimilar book from The Little Stranger. It's, uh, it's a bit gothic. It's not supernatural, and it's not really spooky, but somehow it's a bit gothic. But it's a very, very different scenario, kind of working-class family, that new Britain, you know, what's on the excitement of that new Britain, but also maybe a slightly gothic underneathness. Underneathness, is that the word? Anyway, yeah. And Lenny, what are you up to? Um, so I have a few things that I'm sort of trying to get into shape, but the one that I think was probably going to be next is a film about... Uh, so I'm jumping forward a bit, but not too much either. It's till the end of the 60s and into the 70s in New York, and it's a film about a boxer called Emil Griffith, so a real person. Um, who had an extraordinary life. He was um, what, living sort of double life in the underground um, gay scene around Times Square on the one hand, and then as sort of this world champion in the most macho of all sports. And an extraordinary life story, which we've been researching and then using some brilliant texts that are already out there. So hope to do that next year. Well, thank you very much, and we'll look forward to both of those. Thank you. Thank you.